Today's episode is a best of episode about the use of social media in academic medicine appearing in order on today's episode. It's Dr. Sapna Kujakar, it's Dr. Mahadavapa Mahesh, and it's Dr. Peggy Semmingson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Super informative on the use of social media in academic medicine. You know, one of the first slides I present whenever I talk about this is, you know, whether we appreciate it or not, or have the insight to um, say this, we all live in bubbles, right? So you I had to acknowledge I was in a Johns Hopkins Medicine institutional bubble. I'm in an academia bubble. I'm in my peds critical care bubble, my peds anesthesia bubble. And so it's really hard to get any information into those bubbles if you're not actively trying, actively working on it. At the same time, all of us within these bubbles, we, we're not interacting with the people in the other bubbles that could have a potential contribution to what we're doing, including all of those colleagues and community um, PICUs out there taking care of kids, just like I am, but we're not, we don't have an interface necessarily. What this has done is created an immediate interface for all of us to really feel like we're not alone in this. So, So right now we're all talking actively about what we're dealing with in PICUs across the world, right? What is everyone, what is Australia seeing? And as we know, everything moved right from Australia through to Europe to us, we're learning about it instantaneously. So oh. we can prepare. Start by following those thought leaders. Start by following organizations and journals. Because those are the three that, you know, it's it's hard to, to get dangerous with those because you trust them to begin with, right? Um, and then see what, what comes out of it. And then see what how people respond to the things that these thought leaders, organizations, and journals are putting out there. And then you will start to see organically how you can potentially start not just observing, but contributing. And that's, and, and, and it'll happen organically. Uh, There are many, many people out there, probably more than not what I call lurkers and being a lurker is not a bad thing. So I have many people come to me at conferences and say, I follow you on Twitter. I've never tweeted anything, but thank you for all the content you put out there. And so you don't know what's making a difference, but there are people out there listening, even if they are not engaging back with you. And I think from people who are those observers who have taken that plunge, they appreciate being in the know. They appreciate waking up in the morning and knowing that JAMA had a big article that came out that's controversial or, you know, knowing that there's this huge surge over here. It's kind of getting it all at once, not mm-hmm. having to sit in front of a television or in front of your computer screen for hours upon hours trying to put it all together. Sapna, this is just so amazing. Can you tell us, talk a little bit about um, the professional, the ethics, and you've mentioned this phrase, drowning out misinformation. How do you assure or monitor, you know, boundaries of, of, you know, you you talked a bit about, you know, the, the trusted sources of information, but and earlier you talked about this phrase of infodemic. How do you address through your social media, topics that are divisive and the misinformation out there? Do you attack that head on or do we kind of skirt that politely? How does that, what are the, you know, the rules of operation in in the Twitter sphere? It's a very, very important topic for discussion. So obviously uh, there's a lot of great things about uh, professional social media, but there's the good, the bad and the ugly, right? And 
Um, I think many of our pediatrician colleagues have also have experienced this when they talk about the importance of masking in children. And, um, you know, there are people who are, who may come after you and, 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 you know, what we call uh, affectionately the trolls, the people who are going to, to say things, be disrespectful. I think that the key and what I always encourage um, folks on social media, whether they've been on for just a few minutes or they've been doing this for years, um, be on social media the way you would be in person. Don't say anything on social media that you wouldn't be willing to say in person um, and to say publicly in a group forum. That, that I think, is the best first rule from a professional perspective, because this is your persona. This is you um, out there. And, you know, everyone understands that if you're out on social media, that that's something that someone could pull up in a Google search, for example. So you never want to say anything that you would regret later. <laughs> and um, it's my my last point on every talk is always remember that a tweet lasts a lifetime. You're always welcome to delete something if you're like, oh, wait, wait a second, I shouldn't have said that. But it's out there, regardless of whether you deleted it, you know, and so that's, that's the first step. The second step is, um, as uh, you know, since we're talking about this on a, you know, podcast, and I'm from the School of Medicine, I have to mention that it's especially in the pandemic, we've noticed that there's a lot of people putting stuff out there about patient stories, things that they've seen. And it's very important, first and foremost, to always protect privacy, uh, patients and families. So unless you've obtained explicit uh, permission from both the families, patients, and also from your institution um, to share this information on social media, be very careful, not even sharing dates, times, gender, um, any identifying information can tell someone immediately what you're talking about or who you're talking about. So stay away from those. Stay focused on sharing good information in a world of misinformation. Mm. So I like that. I like that. Let's always share good news, good news, good news. Exactly. So I do not. I personally have made a decision not to engage with the negative information. Oh. Um, with the the people who are out there, because if I amplify that and say something, I'm just amplifying it. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there to all my followers. And then that could potentially um, increase the bandwidth of that message that I potentially think is harmful. Mm-hmm. So instead, I think as scientists, as clinicians, as advocates for health, um, we need to be out there putting out good information, sharing what we think is best, not being divisive, but just saying, this is my perspective, and I want to put it out there, and celebrating when people put out messages that are good as well. So I amplify as much as possible when someone is sharing something that I think will benefit the people that I'm most passionate about protecting, and in my case, you know, children, for sure. First thing is like they're worried about social media. It's too much distraction, it can take away too much time, and it can also lead to like all this negative uh, exposure, blah, blah, blah. Right. The good thing about Twitter is you can actually allow yourself how much to engage or not to engage. For example, if I had tweeted something and I get a lot of, like, you know, somebody trying to troll. Troll means like somebody trying to reply back and trying to engage you in a negative conversation. Okay. You can simply shut it off by either muting that person or blocking the person from ever tweeting you or reaching you. Or you can simply not in- engage the person in the reverse conversation. Yeah. So the another thing is like one of the strongest thing which I use at on Twitter is for advocacy. Advocacy. Yes. Ah, right. Advocate. Forgot really. about that. And, sure. And and that has become really powerful tool. I'm not going to go, go into the details of the politics of 
Let me give one example. Right now, the CMS, the Medicare Services, has proposed some major cuts for radiology reimbursement in our field. So the American College of Radiology, where I sit on the board, have now trying to reach out to their members to call their congressmen to express that why that can hurt the imaging world. Sure. That's one way. The other way is like the American College of Radiology also has sent a tweet bits with the links there where you can click, click the link. It will directly take you to a page where you can sign off your name and send it to the congressman. And that I like to tweet it or retweet it. And now the ACR, the American College of Radiology, has engaged a couple of super users such as us to help them in advocating or promoting this advocacy, to reach out to the maximum number of people so that all of them, at least some percentage of them, will respond to these tweets or emails and call their congressmen. And again, that life is made easy. All they have to do is click. It will go to another web page with all the letters already signed. They have to sign off their name and it will go to the congressman. And what I have seen in the past is like the more number of replies and messages they get from their constituents, more higher the chances the congressmen or the senators will respond to that particular aspect. Wow. Yeah. Another another good benefit, advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. And and for example, being we in the scientists, we do so much for funding. And always there is a there is a jeopardy for a funding, and especially at the annual budget time, Congress always have a sharp knife for cutting off the budget. Right. So one way is like as you all know, all the societies will write emails uh, to the signed off by a variety of societies and send them. Comp- but more than that, this advocacy from the Twitter world, tweeting and directly sending them about this this can jeopardize my research. It can jeopardize the country's standing in future. All those things can really need to be heard by the senators, the congressmen. And the only way is like more number of people have to do it. And I find that to be done easily with the Twitter. All right. <laughs> you've, you've definitely <laughs> sold me, Mahesh. Love, love it. So you, can you go back to the micro learning also, the short yeah, yeah, yeah. learning? I love, I want to yeah, hear more. Yeah, yeah. So I learned about this in a random offhand remark when I was standing in a buffet. Um, But, you know, micro learning has been around for a little while and it's really been picked up in the corporate sector, I think, because people are just so busy. But then we're all busy now. Um, And so it's just this idea of kind of taking your competencies or or your sort of small, smallest um, objectives in your course and then creating content or finding content that goes with those competencies. But it's hard to find micro learning. Um, it's a lot of learning is long, <laughs> you know, but so an example is like a two minute podcast and a two question quiz. What? Yeah, so, but, but, yeah, so just build it in to your contents, but you might have a series of those micro podcasts. So I used to teach teachers and let's say I'm teaching, um, you know, how to learn to read. And so I might have a pod, micro podcast on phonics and then one on vocabulary, just giving them the basics of it before we jump in. Um, so yeah, so it's just little bite-sized bits of content. I Usually we think of audio and video, but it, it, it could also just be anything, um, a short segment of text that you send through email. I mean, it's just, it just varies. Or Instagram. Now you're reminding me of... Exactly. Yeah, we talked about snippets on year two of the podcast. We had we called it the year of the snippet. And oh, I love it. Kind of the same thing that one of our colleagues yeah. uh, came up with 
years ago at one of our professional conferences for the group on faculty affairs. And she talked about snippets being like 10 minute blocks, but I like this two minutes is mm-hmm. I think Peggy, you've nailed it. That's, that's that'd be perfect. If a faculty could go through a library of content and just highlight or asterisk or star this, mm-hmm. I want to learn about say, you know, negotiation or communicating mm-hmm. or mediating mm-hmm. conflict. And they could just kind of bang, 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 listen to a couple of quick two minute things to refresh right. their memory about what should I do as I enter this meeting mm-hmm. where there's a conflict between a postdoc and a faculty member? What are some, right. some of the basic principles that I mm-hmm. should adhere to or not do? I think that's awesome. Love yeah. It. Yeah. I've loved it too. And it's easy to create. You can just do it on your phone. On your phone? What do you mean? Yeah. So I, I pull up the voice memo app. I have an iPhone. And so I just pull it up and make a podcast and send it to myself. And then I put it on SoundCloud or whatever, whatever platform you use. So it, it can just be almost spontaneous or just go in your closet <laughs> and, and you low to, uh, what is it? Uh, minimalist uh, technology. So like to your closet. Okay, faculty members, are we hearing this? Just step into a closet, step into the restroom, step into your car on the way home. Like, yeah, why not? <laughs> my colleague, Dave Usum talks about he would dictate um, his writing for like scholarly papers on the way home. He'd just say, he'd start talking, you know, you know, the literature shows that da, 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 whereas we know this, we don't know that. And then this paper, we're going to just, he would just start dictating that. And then when he would go home, he'd have the basics, the shell of a paper. So what you're mm-hmm. saying, Peggy, is that's brilliant. The same thing mm-hmm. as you're going home and something off the top of your head that you just learned or taught today, you can do those sound bite two minute mm-hmm. chunks or just mm-hmm. talk, mm-hmm. pause. And then you, by the time you get home, you got a 20 minute series that you could chop up into little nuggets. Oh, mm-hmm. I love it. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.